Good morning. We sent an email last night for a prayer request for one of our class members, Barbara Krausen. Her son is uh, ill uh, in the hospital, renal failure on dialysis. Uh, we got a text this morning that he's, he's doing a little better this morning, but she's asking prayer for her son, Brad. Uh, and then I also want to ask prayer requests um, for... Um, our upcoming trip to South Africa. Um, many of you know that we are heading to South Africa this Wednesday, um, Christy, myself, and Russell, to do a series uh, at uh, one of their camp meetings in uh, Drakensburg Mountains, and then we're going to be in Ladysmith, and then we're going to be in Somerset West, and we're going to be doing a series across the country. This has been a long time coming. We originally got our first request to go to South Africa to do programs in 2010. But there was, um, let's just say, organizational opposition. Certain individuals with leadership responsibilities didn't want to see us come down there. And so it's been ongoing for six years, request after request. And finally, we got approved this year to go down. So we'd like you to uh, to keep us in prayer, uh, not just for safety, but that, that what we present will be helpful to, to the final message that, that uh, about God's character of love. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to come and share together and learn more of your kingdom of love. We invite your spirit here this morning to enlighten our minds, to transform our hearts, to renew us, to be like you. Uh, we do want to remember Barbara and her son Brad in prayer, lift them up, and ask that you intervene in accordance with your will uh, to bring healing as you know is best. We ask that you'll be with us this uh, next couple of weeks as we're traveling in South Africa, that we'll have a safe journey. But more than that, you'll give us the words to speak and the ability to represent you rightly, that the message about you will, will take root and uh, continue to grow in South Africa and more hearts and minds will be transformed. Be with us as we study this morning that we'll draw close to you in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in the uh, quarterly, the book of Job, and the title this week is God and Human Suffering. God and Human Suffering. And I just brought this book um, to uh, recommend for those who would like a very scholarly um, work on the whole question about God and human suffering, it's uh, God of Sense and Traditions of uh, and, and Traditions of Nonsense by Sigvi Tonsted. It's very well done, very scholarly. Um, if you'd like like a book, uh, just want to recommend that to you. Sigvi is a Seventh Day Adventist physician and uh, MD, and he's had a degree in biblical languages, and so he's a very very thoughtful person. So the title of the lesson, as you look at the title, God and Human Suffering, have you ever had questions as you've experienced or seen human suffering? Have you ever had to answer someone else's questions who was questioning the the existence or the trustworthiness of God because of human suffering? If you jump into Tuesday's lesson... We're going to jump over to Tuesday because I want that first paragraph. And you look at that first paragraph. It says, despite the hype of those who don't believe in God, those who believe in God have many good reasons for their belief. However, there's been one perennial problem that many have used through the ages to justify their disbelief. And that is the problem of human suffering and evil. How can God be all good, all loving, all powerful, and evil exist? This has been and remains a stumbling block to many. And also, if we are honest, what believer in God, what person who has tasted and experienced the reality of God and his love hasn't struggled at times with that question? And so, I thought maybe we just throw out some types of things that sometimes people struggle with. I have patients in my office and struggle with. A drunk driver runs across the line and hits an 18-year-old, and the 18-year-old dies and the drunk driver survives. Why didn't God use his power to save the, save the teen? Two people have cancer. One survives, the other doesn't. And the one who survives is the one who wasn't being prayed for. The one who dies is the one who's being prayed for. Ever happen? Cause questions. 
Does God love one more than the other? Have you ever had a critic, the skeptic of God, bring up as evidence things like this? And even worse, child abuse, wars, famine, human suffering, as evidence there is no God. Perhaps the classic argument was presented by Epicurus 300 years before Christ with, with these questions, and I'll read a paragraph from Epicurus. Is God, is God willing to prevent evil but unable to do so? In that case, God is not omnipotent. Is God able to prevent evil but unwilling to do so? If so, God must be malevolent. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why is there evil in the world? This is a classic logic argument by Epicurus, and it still persists today. Many who uh, reject the idea of God reject it based on this type of thinking. Epicurus went on to write, God is either willing to remove evil and cannot, or he can and is unwilling. Or he is neither willing nor able to do so, or else he is both willing and able. If he is willing and not able, he must be weak, which cannot be affirmed of God. If he is able and not willing, he must be envious, which is also contrary to the nature of God. If he is neither willing nor able, he must be both envious and weak and consequently not be God. If he is both willing and able, the only possibility that agrees with the nature of God, then where does evil come from? Or why does he not eliminate it? How do you answer such questions? What do you say to the critic who raises these questions to you? Do you have an answer that is compelling? Or do you give the answer Martin Luther the, the, the great reformer would have given. This is Martin Luther. This is the highest degree of faith. To believe him God, merciful, when he saves so few and damns so many. And to believe him righteous when by his own will he makes us necessarily damnable, so that he seems, according to Erasmus, Erasmus to delight in the torments of the wretched, and to be worthy of hatred rather than love. If then I could by any means comprehend how this God can be merciful and just, who displays so much wrath and iniquity, there would be no need of faith. That's Martin Luther, the great reformer. Do you hear Luther's position? What is Luther's position on how we answer the question of the critic on why a God who's all-powerful and all-good permits evil. What's his answer? Just believe without thinking. That's Luther's answer. We just take that on faith. If we could understand it, then we wouldn't need faith. And so we're required to believe that God is good in the face of the evidence that he's evil. And that's a measure of faith. This is Luther's position. Do you know that Luther's position is held by a majority of Christians today? Or at least many? And many in... That, that hold to a certain theological perspective, love this idea. Faith is believing when you know it ain't so. <laughs> Tim, I can't quite get there with that because I'm, I'm thinking that what you're going through right now is, is rhetoric. You know, and, and that's where I would stop a person who had all these arguments about God being, if he's all good or all, you know, all willing and all that, and why doesn't he do it? You know, it's like, it's not either or, you know. And yet, debaters 
and people who love rhetoric. But it's not rhetoric. Are you saying that suffering is rhetoric? Are you saying there's no real evil in the world? There's no real suffering in the world? So that's the argument. There is real suffering in the world, and you claim that God is good and that God's all-powerful. So how do you explain an all-powerful, good God allowing such horrible evil in the world? How do you explain there being 31 chapters in Job when, they, when you could say it to one? You know? and that's, that's the way I come back to people like that. But th- 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 Okay, so is the answer, how do you explain 31 chapters in Job compelling to somebody who's the critic? Oh, well, I believe now. You've got me. I don't think that persuades. Let's just start. But we're going to persuade today. Trust me, we're going to persuade today. I'm I'm presenting to you the concerns that are common. And and I'm challenging you to process. How do you answer? We have answers. Go ahead, Linda. Well, I mean, the way I think of it, the way I've actually approached people with it, is that to present to them the God they think God is, which is a a puppeteer. Would you really want a God who forces you to behave even if you don't want to, well, you're asking that God to be a puppeteer for the entire world, to make us behave whatever we choose. And yet what he has done is make creations with powers and then gives them the freedom to use it. Oh, I like where you're going with that. Now you're actually bringing a new level, and that's the question. What are the elements, if you you heard Epicurus' argument, you heard Martin Luther's response, what are the elements that are critical to really understanding that Martin Luther don't and Epicurus don't have? What elements are they missing? The great controversy. The great controversy they're missing. True. That's true. Over what? The presence of evil. The presence of evil. Character and freedom. What's the core? What's the, the root? The character of God. Character of God. And free will. Free will. Okay, I like where you're going with both of those. What do we emphasize in here for the last several years? The, the real root, and, it, and it's connected directly to the character of God and free will. They're both connected, so it's not either or. It's not that those are wrong answers. Those are absolutely right answers. They don't understand God's law. They're operating and they're trying to answer these questions through the lens on how human beings deal with it, on how we deal with reality. That's what they're trying to do. They don't understand design parameters on which reality actually is constructed and built to operate. And we're going to really unpack this throughout the lesson today. Both First, we're going to talk about the spiritual design parameters, and we'll talk about physical design parameters. But they're viewing the entire thing through the human-imposed law. For them, it's a question, merely a question of power. That's, their, that's the issue, a question of power. For Epicurus, if God is good then he uses his power to impose his will to eradicate evil. It's very simple. It's a simple math. He's good, and if he's good and he's powerful, then there's no evil. He, d- he just takes it away. And for Luther, it's assumed that God is good and that he's powerful. Therefore, we must accept on faith that all the stuff that looks evil to us just isn't evil. It's somehow good, and God's permitting it for some good. Because it's assumed that God is good, and he's powerful. So that must, And we just accept it on faith. That's Luther's position. How do we answer the critics, the keys, foundational understanding, why evil in the world? First, we have to understand God's original design, how he actually, his original construction for space, time, matter, life, intelligence, relationships, how did he actually originally build things to work? Because what we're dealing with now, how many would would suggest that what we see in the world today is how God designed it to run? 
This is not how God designed it to run. And so we can't really understand the, uh, understand the, the, why evil exists until we first understand the contrast between what we have today and what God originally designed. This is also known as diagnosing a problem. If your diagnosis is wrong, then your solutions are wrong. Okay? So God's original design. How would you suggest that? So they don't understand God's original design. Luther doesn't understand the nature and character of sin, neither does Epicurus. They don't understand either one. And therefore, they don't understand the solution. And Luther's solution is a flawed solution based on a flawed diagnosis. Because Luther very much believed in an imperial law construct. Imposed law. That, that God, um, who, who created space, time, matter, energy, life itself. You and I can't create those things, can we? So what we can do, we make up rules. And then we threaten to punish you if you break our rules. That's how we make law. I'm going to put a tax on you. And if you don't pay the tax, I'm going to imprison you. I'm going to make a law that you're not allowed to chew gum in our society. This is Singapore. Anybody been to Singapore? It's against the law to chew gum. And even to have gum in Singapore, it's against the law. If you get caught with gum, it's a fine. You'll be arrested and a $100 fine. No, it's $500. $500 fine. She's from Singapore. $500 fine. Get caught chewing gum in Singapore. You see? This is an imposed law. They will punish you for breaking the rule. This is how humans do law. Many people, sadly, think God functions no better than sinful human beings. That he simply makes up rules and he inflicts punishment for breaking rules. That's how people, sadly, have viewed God since Rome Christianized itself. And this whole Roman concept of Christianity is an imperial concept of Christianity. That God's an imperial dictator who, make, who runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. That is the confection in Christianity. And then when you go to answer questions like this, that's why these, these, these things come down. Well, he's powerful and he does what he wants to do. Uh, modern Christians call this sovereignty. He's sovereign. He can do what he wants. They don't understand his designs and how his laws actually work. And so you come back to his laws, his actual laws, how he built reality to work. The number one law is the law of love, the principle of giving. God is love, and when he constructed reality, he built reality to operate in harmony with himself. Paul says in Romans one twenty, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. And you know, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants get back oxygen to you. A never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built, constructed. What happens if you transgress that law? What happens if you tie a plastic bag over your head and selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself? You're a lawbreaker. There's no trial. There's no tribunal. There's no infliction from a powerful potentate. They're the wages of doing that. And the Bible says sin is transgression of the law, and the wages of that is... Now you understand, when you deviate from God's designs, his laws, it is destructive, ultimately leading to death. That's what the scripture is teaching. Epicurus didn't understand it. Martin Luther didn't understand it. Many Christians today don't understand it. There's other laws, law of liberty, design law. In a relationship, if you violate liberty in a relationship, you're dating a girl. You, you, you think that she's the one you want to spend your life with. So you ask her to marry, marry you with a knife to her throat. And if you don't, I'm going to kill you. What will happen? Will love grow stronger? Love will be damaged, I promise. A desire to rebel will be instilled. You cannot have love in an environment without freedom. It's not possible. Try it. If you're already in a relationship, start. You don't have to use the knife. Um, I've decided that you can't 
spend any money without my permission. You can't use your cell phone. You can't text any of your friends. In fact, you can't use the computer without getting my permission first. See what happens to love in that relationship. I promise it will be instant rebellion. Instant. Love only grows, and it's a law. And Design laws are testable. You can test them, and they have the same outcome or consequence every time. When you understand there's others' laws of worship, by beholding, we become changed. The neurobiology is very strong on this. The Bible calls law of worship. Science calls it modeling. But what you spend time thinking about, reading, watching, adoring, admiring, you fire different neural circuits, and you actually are transformed. You become a different person over time based on that. Either you become a, a more Christ-like person by, what's the Bible say, fix your eyes on Christ and become like him, or you become a more worldly person. But we're changed by what we, this is a law. You can't avoid it. Law of exertion. If you want, strength requires exercise. You want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Physical strength, language skills, musical ability, math ability. You want strength in some area, you've got to exercise it. You want strength in love, you want to be a powerful person who loves, you've got to love people. Discerning right from wrong. Discerning right from wrong. It says in Hebrews chapter 5.14, the mature, the grown-ups, the, the Christian mature are those who've developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong. What's practice? Exercise. It's the theater instrument. You're taking piano lessons, and you have to go home and practice. You've got to exercise that skill. You've got to exercise thinking for yourselves. Come, let us reason together. Martin Luther took the position, no, we don't want to think, we don't want to understand, we just want to have faith. That comparison of those two that you put forth early uh, made me wonder which one's the greater darkness. I was more concerned for Luther, the great reform. And, and Luther, by the way, I think Luther was doing God's work. Yes. But he was coming out of such deep darkness that even moving in the right direction, he was still trapped in much darkness. With these in mind, we can ask and understand some of God's original design for humankind. Was God's design for humankind not an exist? Was it his original design? Wasn't it for them to be beings who lived in love and perfection with no defect and no suffering? That was the original design. Yeah. Can computers love? Okay, they cannot. Robots cannot love. What's required for love? Freedom. Choice. That's right. What God wants, he wants our love, he wants our trust. Computers can be programmed to be reliable and predictable, but they cannot be programmed to love and trust. Love and trust requires the free will, choice, and consent of a sentient being. Law of liberty stuff. You can't get love and trust with threats and coercion. You can't get it. Trust me or I'll kill you. Oh, I trust you more now. No, I don't. I don't trust you. I'm looking for ways to get away from you. You see? Then how much of Christianity teaches God says, love me. I sent my son to die for you. Trust me. But if you don't love and trust me, I'll kill you. you remember the cartoon? He'll keep you alive artificially so he can torture, have you tortured eternally. Even as sinful people, we would not think that punishment for the offense. You remember the cartoon? Jesus standing at the door and knock, let me in. For what? So I can save you. From what? For what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> I mean, this is what much of Christianity thinks because they're operating on imposed law. So, God wants us to live existences of love which require real freedom, sentient beings. Can love, and love cannot grow, 
without real freedom. Did God create humankind in his image? Would that include the ability to love? Yes. That would mean then genuine, real freedom. And genuine, real freedom means the freedom to disobey, to deviate from God's design. Right? If we don't have the freedom to deviate, we're not really free. We're only programmed. So we have real freedom. And Adam and Eve did deviate from God's line. Now the big question. Now that I've laid out the design. You see just a little of the, of the law of love, the law of liberty, and how, law of worship, law of exertion. You see these laws, how they work, how they're designed protocols. We see that love requires real freedom. We see that they were free to deviate from his design. Now the big question, when they deviated from his design, when they disobeyed, what law lens do you look at disobedience through? Do you look at disobedience through the laws that we make? You disobeyed. How dare you? I'm the rightful ruler. I'm the sovereign of the nation. Uh, how dare you disobey me? How, what an affront to my, to my sovereignty, my royalty. And do we put this on God? He's offended. He's affronted. And, and justice requires now that he must act to enforce his law. If he doesn't act to enforce his law, then the law has no power. His government collapses, so he must act to kill. This is what's commonly taught through human law lens. Or do you see it through design law lens? As soon as they deviated from his design... They were changed. So thinking through, when Adam sinned, did Adam's act of sin change God? No. No, he never changes. Same yesterday. Did it change God's law? Did it change the condition of himself? Yes, notice that. God doesn't need anything done to him. He's perfect. The law doesn't need anything done to it. It's perfect. Humankind now was changed. They're deviant from the design. They're out of harmony with God's construction. Thus, the Bible uses these words, dead in trespass and sin. We might simply say they have a terminal condition. Their condition is terminal. What Adam did changed the nature of man out of harmony from perpetual life to dying you will die. Do we believe God is love? Do we believe this? How many believe it? Everybody believes it, okay? Does love inflict harm? Not discipline, not discipline. Harm, injury, intend to destroy. Does love do that? Love does not. Love is not the source of harm, the source of pain, the source of suffering, the source of death. But when we take the position... When we take this position that love is not the source of pain, not the source of suffering, not the source of death, immediately some will point to suffering in the world around us. This is the question, human suffering, okay, in the world around us. And then to the Old Testament, where they have God in the flood, the firstborn of Egypt, Kordes and Abiram, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, and other places, God instructing the Israelites to wipe them out, man, woman, and child, and baby, and, and, and animals, pets, wipe them all out. And they conclude, therefore, linking the two, God's action in the Old Testament, human suffering in the world today, therefore God is the source of inflicted evil, pain, and suffering. This linkage in the minds of people causes two outcomes. The outcome of Epicurus, there is no God. We wouldn't believe in a God like this. Or the outcome of Martin Luther, we take that on faith. We don't think. We just believe. And the Martin Luther approach is the mindless, thoughtless, non-thinking believer. We believe. We have no clue how reality actually works. So, with all this in mind, 
How do you answer the critics that say, all this human suffering, you believe in a good God, why why doesn't he stop the suffering? How do you answer them? Carefully. (laughs) Well, we need another piece, honestly. There's another piece of data we need. Are you with me so far on God's design of love, on the law of love, law of liberty, law, these, these design You're with me on the distinction between design law and imposed law. You're with me on, on this idea that, that God doesn't operate like we operate. He operates, his ways are higher than our ways. You're all with me with that, okay? There's still a piece we're missing, though, when we go to answer the question of God's actions in the Old Testament, that linkage, God acting in the Old Testament, and what we see happening in the world around us saves a piece missing. What do we understand death to be? That's missing. We have to understand that piece. When Jesus said at the funeral of the little girl, remember he walks into a funeral, the little girl is wailing, all the mourners are mourning, and he says, she's not dead. What did they do? They laughed at him. Why would they laugh at him? Because from her, their perspective, she was dead. So when Jesus, who the Bible describes as the light of the world, the light which lightens all men, that's how Jesus is described, right? When he says she's not dead, was he lying? Was he trying to mislead? Was he trying to confuse? Was he trying to obscure? Or was he trying to enlighten? What was he trying to do? Enlighten. Get your mind around that. Jesus says, she's dead. They're having a funeral. She's not dead. Hmm. Jesus is light. Then there's something going on here. I need to reprocess. What's going on here? Lazarus, he says to his disciples, Lazarus is asleep. I need to go wake him. Disciples say, well, it's good if he's sleeping, he'll, he'll recover. We don't need to go. And Jesus then said, for their understanding, Lazarus is dead. When Jesus said Lazarus was sleeping, was he trying to confuse the disciples? Was he trying to mislead them? Was he trying to, again, enlighten, help them see a, a reality they couldn't yet see? Does the term, the word, the term, death, have more than one meaning? Do we mean one thing by that term and God means something else by that term? How do we understand it? This goes back to understanding the nature of humanity. Run through this very quickly. The Bible says we're tripartite. Body, soul, spirit. Body, analogy. The Greek word for body is soma. You've heard of psychosomatic illnesses, soma, the body. Okay, This would be analogous to your computer's hardware, the machine itself. Your body is the machine. The soul, the Greek word for soul, is psyche. From where we get psychiatry and psychology, it's your unique personality, your unique individuality, your unique identity, with all your memories and and beliefs and values and things that make you you, which is analogous to your computer software. Not just the program operating system, but all the data you saved, all the programs, all the files, all the pictures, everything that makes your, that way you've got it organized and constructed, and which how you got things turned on and turned off in your operating system that makes yours uniquely yours. When you turn it on, a certain desktop comes up. That's yours. And then, spirit. The Greek word for spirit is panuma, from which we get pneumonia and pneumatic tire. It means wind or breath or breath of life. In our computer metaphor, it's the energy source. For your computer to be operational, it requires three things. Hardware, soma, body. Software, psyche, soul. And an energy source, panuma, spirit. If you have any two of those three with your computer, you have energy, you have a battery, you have electricity, and you have hardware, but you have no software, will your computer run? 
You have software and hardware, but no energy. Will your computer run? Two out of three is non-operational. To be operational, you must have three. Human beings, to be operational, require all three. Yes? I know there's a scripture in the Bible that says, let the dead bury the dead, which I always thought was those who were without the Spirit. They had already turned the Holy Spirit away. So back to our objective lesson here, the computer analogy. When your computer runs out of power, the power runs out. What state does it go into? Ooh, it goes into sleep mode, doesn't it? What does the Bible describe happens to us when we run out of power? We sleep. Isn't this interesting? Now, is your computer dead when it runs out of of power? But might we say sometimes, my battery's dead? Do we ever say that? My battery's dead. Does that mean your battery can't be recharged? Interesting. So dead has a different meaning now, doesn't it? Hmm. Hmm. Now, what happens if you have your computer backed up on a cloud? You know, everyone knows what cloud service is these days, right? Everybody knows what that is? Okay. If your computer's backed up on the cloud, get your mind around that metaphor. Your individuality is backed up on a heavenly cloud. And somebody takes your machine, your computer's backed up on the cloud, they take your machine and they destroy the machine. Are you primarily worried about the machine? Are you primarily worried about the data on the machine? What's your primary concern? And so Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, soma, hardware, but the one who can destroy the soul, psyche, software. Don't be afraid. They, they, the evil world can only destroy your body. They cannot destroy your soul. Your individuality, your identity, your character, your personhood, your software, they can't touch it. And so with all that in mind, I love Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, and this comes back to how we understand human suffering, God's actions in the Old Testament. But Paul writes, brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, whose power have run down, or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe, now notice this, Adventists have kind of just ignored this. This next phrase, Adventists historically have just kind of read and just immediate denial, like it's not even there. Okay? And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Adventists like that part. (laughs) Right? Because historically Adventists put everybody in the ground. Soul sleep in the ground. And the other non-Adventists who have, have their loved ones in heaven. And we don't like that phrase. He brings with him those who have fallen asleep. But notice Paul has the righteous in the same text, at the same event, during the same time, coming both down from heaven and up out of the ground at the same time. They're coming from both places. The righteous. What does it mean? Tripartite. Tripartite. Three parts. Okay, Jesus is bringing with him the individualities, the identities, the personhood, the software, the souls of all those who die trusting him on the heavenly servers, also known as the Lamb's Book of Life. He brings those with him. And he rates new hardware, new bodies, new hardware, new machines, downloads the individualities and the breeze and the breath of life, and they live again. They're resurrected. Just as somebody took your machine, your computer, but it was backed up on the cloud, and they 
melted it in a fire, they destroyed it. You go to the store, you buy a new heart, a new piece of, of uh, hardware, a new, new computer, you download from the cloud your software that was stored there, you've just resurrected your computer. That's what you've done. So what happens when somebody dies what we call death? Here's what happens. The body turns to dust. You know the scriptures for these. Dust you came from and dust you will return. The panuma, the spirit, returns to God. The energy returns to God who gave it, the life energy. And the soul, the software, the psyche, is safe and secure with Christ in heaven, stored on the heavenly Lamb's book of life, the servers, waiting for the time he returns with his saved saints to download them into their new hardware. So an updated version of 1 Thessalonians, you might enjoy this. It's a little, little fun. It says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those whose hardware is shut down. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus had a hardware shut down and then rebooted and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus the software individualities of those who trusted in him when their hardware shut down. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and those whose hardware have disintegrated will arise with upgraded perfect bodies. After that, we were still alive. We'll be caught together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord forever. So what we call death Is it what God calls death? It is not. It is an artificial state. Get your mind around this. What we call death is an artificial state of suspended animation occurring because God chose to intervene and battle evil to provide eternal life for his children. When he said to Adam in in Eden, in the day you eat, dying you will die, he was not saying to him that the wages of sin is sleep for a little while and resurrect into a new body. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, deviate from my design, you disconnect yourself from the source of life, and you will decay and die and not exist because you have, don't have life original unbarred in yourself. Your life comes from unity with me. And when you step out of harmony with me, there's no life outside of my design. Life is only built to operate like this. It doesn't operate like that. So, with all this in mind, I've listed the reasons, and there's a whole list of reasons why in the world today we see pain, suffering, and death in the world. First is entropy. Anybody know what entropy is? What I was just saying. Prior to Adam and Eve's sin, God walked face to face with Adam and Eve on planet Earth. They were bathed in his life-giving glory. They lived in the immediate presence of God. Constant access to the tree of life and so forth. There was no decay. There was no degradation. They were having constant energy input from the source of life to maintain all systems at their optimal. But after their sin, they disconnected their face-to-face relationship with God. Do you notice that immediately they were cold and naked? Why do you think they were cold and naked? What, why weren't they cold and naked before they fell? What were they clothed with? What were they wearing? What kind of clothes? White. Some, somehow, remember Moses after 40 days and is still in a sinful body. Moses' face is radiating some type of energy. Okay? Imagine Adam and Eve in a sinless body. They were radiating God's energy in some way that we can't fully comprehend at this point in time. Stephen had the same thing. His face was that of an angel. You see it in the Mount of Transfiguration when the, the uh, two sinners who were, tr- or one was translated, one was resurrected, both in their heavenly perfect bodies, are radiating like the sun, like Christ. 
That's what they're doing, right? They're bright as the sun. We don't really fully understand what all that means at this time. But Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, they're disconnected from the source of that energy, and they're not radiating this light anymore. They're cold. And they're naked. Something's gone. Evidence of a disconnection from the source of life. And so, and what happens? They begin to decay. Entropy happens. And they age. Aging is entropy. And 900 years later, they die. So one, one reason is because of the disconnection from God. And then the whole planet has been decaying since. Second, because of the same reason, there's genetic defects and disease because of entropy and the slow decay of our genome. There's all types of genetic defects in our genome that were never there in Eden. Third reason, toxins and poisons because of mutations in the natural world and because of man-made manufactured chemicals and toxins that never existed in the natural world. These things cause all kinds of pain and suffering in the world today. Do I need to give examples? Everybody with me on that? Okay. Evil and selfish actions originating in the hearts of people who are selfish. Cain killing Abel. Evil and selfish actions inspired by Satan upon people to hurt others. Judas betraying Christ. Satan and his agencies affecting nature and causing problems. Look in the first chapter of Job, which we're studying. And you see Satan stirs up a storm and he inspires the Amalekites to come and so forth and so on. How about this? Good people acting to defend and protect others. Abraham goes out and rescues Lot and kills a whole bunch of people. But for those people and those families whose husbands didn't come home that day, there was suffering and pain, wasn't there? Even though those men were doing evil, their kids maybe didn't get their daddy come home that day. They suffered. They hurt. Abraham, a righteous man, trying to stop evil. Good people acting Good people acting selfishly and doing bad things. David and his relationship with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. Because there was still selfishness in his heart that hadn't been removed yet. And he did something that he was terribly repented of and sorrowful for later, but he still did something that was hurtful to others. And until the evil in our own hearts eradicated, we are in danger Even though we might be working for God's cause, we're in danger of hurting others. How about people who are, or whether they're good or evil, making mistakes with no intent to help or to harm? Slipping and falling, auto accidents because of ice, just mistakes happening, and accidents in the world. How about humans acting on God's orders? Kill the women, the children, the cattle. This past week, when I was giving a lecture um, to a group of psychiatrists at the Southern Psychiatric Association on spirituality and evidence-based medicine, and I gave a lecture of uh, quantum mechanics and quantum entanglement and how our prayers with good intentions can actually cause genetic changes in in ourselves and and perhaps even others. Some of the evidence suggests this. Um, One of the questions that came up in the question-answer time, how do you explain God instructing people to kill in the Old Testament? If God is good and God is love, how do you explain it? What would you have said to this group of psychiatrists? Primarily, the vast majority who don't believe in God. It was raised as a uh, as a trump card, you know, a, an, an ace that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna win the day. They raised that with me to see if they to, to stump me to make me confound and go. Oh, uh, 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 we just because typically I've been in places where those questions come up, and most of the people they go. 
that's just something that we just have to wait and take on faith, and we have no real good explanation for that. I've seen that hundreds of times. That's not what I said. What would you say? How would you answer the question? Pardon? You're glad he asked that question. I was. I said, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I did. I said that to them. They were all intrigued. And you could see what my answer, they were stunned with my answer. They really were. And and by the way, and there were, uh, um, oh, a a fairly good percentage of Jewish people in the the audience. A lot of of, Jewish people, many of them go into psychiatry. There was a fair number of them in in there. And so I'm going to be talking about their heritage. And I said, you have to look at the context. In the Old Testament, what you're talking about when God told them to kill every man, woman, and child, and so forth, that wasn't his original plan. His original plan was the hornet was going to go ahead and the pestilence was going to go ahead and little by little they were going to leave the land and abandon it and the Israelites would come in and occupy it and it would never be conflict at all. But these were slaves who had been, been, been dominated for 400 years, had very little power. Their human nature now that they're free, they want, they want, and you know, a psychiatrist, there's this, this need now to, to prove one's strength and power. They wanted to show that they had power. So they, did, they insisted on going to war. And God said, okay, if that's what you're going to do, then do it in one generation. Get it done. And in that way, we will have the least number of people through time killed by war and then least number of your people and generations traumatized by war will have peace in the land for generations to come if you simply wipe them all out then, if that's what you're going to do. It limits and truncates the pain and the suffering. But they didn't do that, and what do we have? Look at history, 4,000 years of war in the Middle East. They never thought that God's instructions were instructions to limit pain and suffering, to, to be merciful and gracious. And it stunned them. This is how we answer. God acting, yes, God gave those orders because of what he was dealing with. Not to cause pain and suffering, not to cause infliction, but to limit it and truncate it. And then finally, God acting himself to protect, to lance, to cauterize Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance. Um, the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, the flood, the firstborn of Egypt. God is acting. But what do we understand he's doing? Is he eternally killing people or is he simply putting them in suspended animation to be raised later this is where you have to keep all the things we talked about in mind so if you understand how love works understand how liberty works understand the nature and character of man understand and you're a parent and you've got kids some of your kids are adult kids and they're very violent they're very rebellious like genesis 6 people remember genesis 6 they were violent and violent all the time rebellious and unruly this is your these are your own kids and, and you've got some younger kids, maybe some adopted kids, maybe your own kids. They're, they're under 10. They're small children. Your older kids are violent, and, and they're abusers, and they're molesters, and they want to take and abuse and, and hurt and kill your young kids. You try to intercede because you love your kids. You try to reform them. You try to uh, get them to re- come to repentance, but they won't. They try to kill you. If you had the ability to put them in cryogenic storage, just freeze them. Hit them with a freeze button. They freeze. So your other kids can grow up safe. And then at some point in time, when it's appropriate, you hit the thaw button, they come back, animate again, and they finish their lives. Would you do that? Is that an act of cruelty or is that an act of love? That's When you understand how reality works, God's design, that's all he did in the Old Testament. He put people in suspended animation. Everybody rises again to complete their lives. Some for eternal life. Some, if you understand the events after the thousand years, they're risen Period of time goes by, they build implements of war, the New Jerusalem's on the earth, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open, and by their own decision, they refuse to go in. They're not kept out by God. 
They won't go in. Even with the evidence of New Jerusalem on earth, they won't go in. God doesn't keep people out of the kingdom. People keep themselves out of the kingdom. I actually look at things um, in addition to what you've said, which I think is excellent. Uh, When you look at the different instances of God's commands about various people, groups, uh, kill these but save these. You can kill the people but keep the animals. Keep the virgins. Kill everybody else. Blah, blah, blah. There seems to be, from a medical perspective, there seems to be some sort of uh, quarantine-ish thing going on. The Bible talks about their disgusting habits of the people that you're taking over. You're taking over their land. Now your habits are even worse than theirs. But I think because of their disgusting habits, there were a lot of disease and so on running rampant. Why else would he say, save the virgins? And they saved, I don't know, 70-something thousand virgins out of one group that they killed all the rest and incorporated the the virgins into their program. I think it's because they weren't carrying STDs, for example. And also the Israelites needed fresh blood, you know, fresh... um, Genetic material. Genetic material. (laughs) So they didn't do inbred, you know. But uh, but so for my mind, when I look at those very different instructions per group, there seems to be probably something we don't haven't specified in the Bible, but you can extrapolate by the various instructions he gives that the people uh, and animals in certain circumstances were too, um, de- I mean, diseased. I think many of the animals to, to be destroyed had, had to do with the fact that um, all human kingdoms throughout history grow by war and by enriching themselves off the plunder of war. That's how all human kingdoms grow. You look at throughout history. When we're, when, if you look at the history of Rome, whenever they were short, they would go to war with somebody to plunder them. Both, both the manpower with slavery and the cattle and all the riches of, of the kingdom. God said to kill all the animals, um, you know, when, you know, Saul went in, kill them all. What's the meaning of this bleeding of the sheep in my ear and so forth and so on? Why did Saul bring that back? Because he wanted to enrich himself. He tried to put it under some guise of sacrificing to God, but the reality was he wanted to get rich. God was teaching them that we do not enrich ourselves in war. This is not how, the, how we experience riches in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of love, not the kingdom of selfish exploitation, and we should not be rewarded for doing something. So when you go in to kill in Jericho and so forth and so on, you wipe everything out because we do not want you to be conditioned to think this is a way to get ahead in the world. It's not. So I think there's that element, psychologically speaking, as well. I don't dispute, perhaps there were some problems with the animals, but I, I think this other lesson is, is a very big piece of it as well. Well, in some instances, they were allowed to keep the animals. Other instances, they were told to kill them. And so the varying instructions are very informational. You know, there's, got to, there's reasons why God contained certain things and allowed them to incorporate other things. And I think the medical issue was probably one of them. Sunday's lesson has us to read Romans 1, 18 through 20, about the wrath of God being revealed against heaven and all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what is... What has been made so that men are without excuse? And then in the first paragraph, it says, what a powerful few sentences. Enough of the real, enough of the reality and existence of God is revealed through what has been made that it is through the created world that is, through the created world, that people will be without excuse for their unbelief. Paul is saying that from the creation alone, humans can learn enough about God to, about the existence and nature of God that they can be justly condemned on the day of judgment. Is that what Paul's saying? 
that because God revealed himself in nature, people can be justly condemned on the day of judgment? Do you hear the infection of imposed law in that interpretation? That is seeing the Bible through the human law lens. And it's distorted. It's not what he's saying at all. It's very sad. Paul's saying that they can, not that they can be justly condemned in a cosmic judicial proceeding, but that they have no excuse for their terminal condition not being remedied. That God has revealed himself to be trustworthy, and if they trust him, their condition is remedial, or they can, God can heal it. Um, this, le- this, this, this distortion, though, perpetuates itself throughout Christianity. Um, nature does, though, reveal the, the existence of God. This is Nancy Piercy's, Piercy's book, um, Finding Truth, and she writes, um, The origin of the universe has given rise to a puzzle known as the fine-tuning problem. The fundamental physical constants of the universe are exquisitely balanced, as though an, on a knife's edge to sustain life. Things like the force of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, the ratio of the mass of the proton and the electron, and many other factors have just the right value needed to make life possible. If any of these critical numbers were changed, even in the slightest, the universe could not sustain life, any form of life. For example, if the strength of gravity were smaller or larger then its current value by only one part in 10 to the 60th, that's a 1 followed by 60 zeros. You see, if you have a 1 followed by 14 zeros, you have 1 trillion. 1 followed by 14 zeros is 1 trillion. This is a 1 followed by 60 zeros. We can't even name that number. But if you have so much as one change, either up or down in gravity, by 1 to the 60th, uh, excuse me, 10 to the 60th, the universe would be uninhabitable. Does this give further insight into what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This is from the remedy. Same verses. And don't think that I've come to destroy what the Old Testament Torah and prophets taught about God and his methods. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. Here is the simple truth. Heaven and earth would disappear if the slightest change were made to God's design protocol for life, what you call his law. I am not here to destroy the law, but to accomplish everything it requires. Do we really understand God's laws or design laws? They're constants. They're, they, they don't change. This is how he built all reality to work. The lesson also points out that the more complexity science finds in life, the less likely become the means science claims for its origin, that of accident and chance. Did you understand what they're saying? The the more science discovers of how complex everything is, then their explanation of, of accident and chance becomes less likely. Then, if that's true, and I think it is true, that is really true, then why is it that so many thinking people continue to choose accident and chance? And the reason they continue to choose accident and chance is preferable, is because it's better and more appealing than a God who uses imposed law and runs his universe like Rome. I would rather believe in accident and chance than a God who runs his universe like a dictator. And that's why people do it. Teaching God is a source of inflicted pain and suffering. A judicial magistrate that says, love me or I'll torture you and kill you is actually a violation of God's design law. 
And I think some level, these, these agnostics and atheists recognize that doesn't work in reality, and they reject it, that there can't be a God who runs his universe like this, because reality doesn't work that way. And so they reject it. But we haven't done a good job of presenting a God who runs his universe differently. This false imperial Roman infection of Christianity has led to horrible abuses to our fellow man in the name of Christ. Think of the history of what we've done to each other in the name of Christ. And these nonsense theologies that make no sense. We, we, have a message prophesied in Scripture for the end of time that calls people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and sea. Calls us back to creator, designer worship. Reject the dictator views of God. Sadly, those who oppose the message do so because they prefer a God who's the source of inflicted pain. This week, one of our friends who promotes our materials around uh, the circle um, emailed me saying that he's been in conversation with a conference president who doesn't want our materials presented in his conference because he looked at the materials and in his view, we teach moral influence theory. And he supported his allegations with a document from the Biblical Research Institute that has this sentence Two sentences in the document. You might have heard this before because I've actually used these two sentences as evidence of the infection. But here's the, here's the Biblical Research Institute quotation of why we, we can't, our, 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 he doesn't want our, our materials presented. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent instead of the guilty in order to save us is considered a violation of justice. You see, this conference president believes that God killed Jesus on the cross. And justice required him to do so. Contradict scripture, Jesus said Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Death comes out from Satan and from sin. Sin, uh, when it pays its wage. Uh, uh, sin, when full grown, brings forth death in James chapter 1. The wages of sin is death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction, the scripture says. But those who hold to the imperial view, the human law view, teach that God, in order to be just, must use his power to kill, and therefore he killed his own son at the cross. It's a gross distortion. It's one of the worst things. And they've got Jesus, on the one hand, saying Satan is a murderer from the beginning, and many Christian leaders are saying God is the murderer from the beginning. God is not the source of death, I can tell you. I lay my, de- my life down freely and I take it back up. God is, God is not the source of death. God is the source of life. And he sent Christ. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. That's where he was. In the Son, reconciling the world to himself. But God is for us. Who can be against us? He was not spare son, but gave him up. How are we not with him? Give us all things. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus. He is at the Father's right hand and is also, in addition to, interceding for us. They're always on the same side. John 16, 26, Jesus said, I will not pray the Father for you. The Father loves you himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the the purpose, to transform and heal us. And I want to read this to you from Hard Sayings of the Bible regarding Romans 1, 18 through, through 32 about the wrath of God being revealed and what the wrath of God is. The human condition... And this is published by InterVarsity Press. It says, The human condition which Paul describes in Romans 1, 18-32 is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitutionary word for God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results 
when God's will, built into the created order, is violated. Since the created order has its origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God's intended sexuality, and relational moral brokenness. The expression, God gave them over, or handed them over, which appears three times in the passage, supports the idea that the sinful perversion of human existence, though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which which we, in freedom, bring upon ourselves. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from its life-giving power. The result is disintegration and death. That is brilliant. It's biblical. It's design law. It's what Paul's teaching in Romans 1. It is not what's found in penal substitution theology. Penal substitution theology is predicated entirely on a human-imposed law construct and rejects the truth about God's nature, character, law, and government. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are the creator who is always love, always good, source of life, source of truth, source of freedom. That when we come back to you, you free us from fear, free us from selfishness, free us from insecurity, set us free in Christ to live as you've designed us to live. We ask now that you enlighten our minds. Any distorted ideas that we still have operating in our minds, remove those ideas, bring the truth to bear, transform us to be like you, and let this message go forth powerfully to free your children so that you can come and take us home. We pray in your holy name. Amen.